welcome back to a brand new week, brand new Monday, brand new episode of People Are Wild. I am Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse of a host, and I'm thankful that you came back for this week's episode. Now some observations, comments, and follow-up. I'm actually wrapping up on my time here in Texas. In the next few weeks, I'm going to be completing my travel assignment, so I guess by extension, you are also about to finish up your very first travel nurse assignment with me. Don't you feel so accomplished on this Monday morning or evening or whenever you listen to this? So I felt like reflecting on a few things I've learned since being out here. One, I have tried Whataburger. Yes, Texas, your precious burger chain, I guess got to me. And on a Sunday when I didn't really have a lot to do for once, I decided to explore what the big deal was. And my results were a little less than savory, I guess. I was underwhelmed and my colon was in a lot of distress. So much like Demi Lovato, I'm sorry that I'm not sorry, but I don't really like Whataburger. Two, sweet tea. That stuff is really hella good. Too good. Nectar from the heavens, sugary sweet goodness. It made my teeth hurt. But if I learned anything from John Cougar Mellencamp, it's that sometimes things hurt so good. The sweet tea sugar crash though, is not a good hurt. And finally, number three, and possibly the most surprising thing I've learned while I've been down here, I don't hate mayonnaise. I know, it's weird, that's why I had to whisper it. It happened when I was at a crawfish boil and I got some sort of dipping sauce that contained mayo and I actually really liked it. So once again, crawdads are showing me the way towards culinary happiness. And I guess mayonnaise and I are on a friendly level. I can tolerate you mayonnaise, but you're still on thin ice. We're not Facebook friends. But you don't listen to this podcast to gain insight into my taste buds. You listen to it to hear about medical entertainment. So let's do that right now. I have lit my Celine Dion prayer candle and I have had Roxette's listen to your heart on a loop repeat for an hour in preparation for this. So I am ready, if you are ready, to talk about how people are wild. Eric Gathers was known to everyone as Hank. He was Loyola Marymount's machine. At six foot seven, 220 pounds, he dominated on the basketball court. Under the tutelage of coach Paul Westhead, who practiced and preached paced out gameplay long before the NBA had caught wind, Hank was a force. He led the nation in scoring and rebounding in the 1990s NCAA basketball season. He was destined to be a rip-roaring success in the NBA. See, Hank Gathers was a different type of basketball player. That's because he never played basketball. He believed in it. The game brought Hank opportunities to dream big, and that paired with his physical strength and ability afforded him the chance to actually attain his dreams. He was the oldest of three boys raised by his mother, Lucille Gathers, and she wanted her sons to be anything that they wanted to be, but only after they had graduated from college with a degree. Hank was in line to be the first in the family to earn a bachelor's degree when he returned to Loyola Marymount for his senior season. 1990 was lining up to be one of the best years of Hank's life, But in order for me to tell Hank's story properly, I'm going to need to back up a few months. For this basketball atlas of a man, he had a problem going on internally, something that would make Atlas shrug. In December of 1989, 
Hank was diagnosed with an abnormal heart rhythm that was made worse with physical exertion. That would be something kind of problematic for a basketball player, and especially a basketball player of his caliber. He had been playing a game against UC Santa Barbara on December 9th, 1989, when he collapsed. He was evaluated by team doctors and physicians and ended up having to miss two games, something that no doubt was the worst part of all of this for Hank. It was then that he was diagnosed with an abnormal heart rhythm, an irregular heartbeat, a cardiac arrhythmia. He was cleared to play as long as he took his medicine. He was prescribed a medicine called Inderol, which is also known as Propanolol. This medication is a beta blocker. And without getting too technical about things, keeping it simple, Kim, Propanolol would help with controlling his heart rhythm abnormalities. But an unwelcome side effect is sluggishness and fatigue. Hank felt like his Herculean strength was zapped. Teammates would see him fall into a deep sleep of sorts whenever they would have to fly out for a road game. And this only happened after he started taking the medicine. Hank himself was frustrated by this side effect and decided to skip taking doses around game day. He was also missing doctor's appointments. He was reducing his intake of the medicine in an attempt to essentially run the drug out of his system and allow him to have more energy, especially during game day. His medicine was cramping his style worse than seeing an ex at a dinner party hosted by your frenemy. See, Hank was a machine, and before games, it was not uncommon to see him running around the track full force. And can you imagine seeing that and you're the opponent? Talk about intimidation, seeing this huge Goliath of a man literally running circles around you. And long before there were questionable ads for Red Bull and 5-Hour Energy Drink even existed, Hank Gathers was unstoppable. By the way, you ever wonder if you drink one of those five-hour energy drinks, if you were to ever drink half of it, would you just get like two and a half hours of energy? That's something I've always wondered. I digress. Inside Hank's body, there was a perfect storm brewing, and it all came to a head on March 4th, 1990. On that day, LMU was playing in the West Coast Conference Tournament. It was a lead-up tournament before the big dance that was March Madness. LMU was considered a lock their record standing at 23 and 5, and they were led by the forces of Hank Gathers, Bo Kimball, and Jeff Fryer, all underneath Coach Westhead. It was a sure thing that LMU would stand a chance at going all the way to the end when the big dance would start. That day on March 4th, Hank was playing with a tenacity he was well known for. See, Hank was known to occasionally get a rebound at one end of the court, make a pass, and then be on the scoring end of a fast break with a slam dunk going so fast that if you blink, you'll miss the fact that he just scored on you. And this game was no different. Hank did actually something similar to that as he took a long pass and slammed it on home, putting some flair into his alley-oop. Hank then jogged and headed over towards the nearest free throw line. He was getting ready to play defense, but he was unsteady and staggered for a bit before collapsing onto his side. Hank tried to get up, saying to his teammates who quickly surrounded him, I don't want to lay down, but he couldn't get up. There was a deafening silence in that gym as players, coaches, and spectators were confused and concerned at what was occurring on the court. Medical personnel and family members, including his mother Lucille, rushed onto the floor. Hank was convulsing and moving spastically. I can only imagine what was going through Lucille's mind, specifically as she watched her oldest son lay now seemingly motionless on the court. I've been on the family member side of things when my brother took a hard hit playing high school football, and I remember my mother and father stood up immediately, and I don't think I've ever remembered seeing my mother move quite so fast to be on the edge of those bleachers, ready to find a way to get down to that field, before my brother was able to get up and walk off the field under his own power. I can't fathom what was going through 
his mother's mind, as those seconds ticked by, and her son, who had just been upright, jogging around, and just scored, was now completely motionless on the court. Her heart must have been beating wildly as she saw him carried out on a gurney from the gym, her thoughts racing as she saw Hank being shocked by a defibrillator that the team had purchased shortly after Hank was diagnosed with his heart condition. There must have been a small sense of relief when Hank sat up again, but the moment of reassurance was fleeting. His cardiac arrhythmia, his abnormal heartbeat, had damaged his heart muscle enough that it set off a fatal heart rhythm. Since he was no longer medicated to a level that was therapeutic and able to manage this rhythm, his heart couldn't recover. The defibrillator was only a temporary fix, and Hank Gathers was pronounced dead when he arrived at the hospital shortly after being taken from the gym. He was only 23 years old. His death left an impact that rippled out beyond his friends and family, and his absence is still felt in their lives almost 30 years later. Hank's autopsy revealed that he did not take his Inderol for at least eight hours before his death, and probably even longer than that as no traces of the drug were found at all in his bloodstream. The formal name of the condition that Hank had is idiopathic cardiomyopathy. This meant that his heart arrhythmia doesn't necessarily have something you can pinpoint as an origin or a starting point that could be isolated. It just can happen. But oftentimes, an infection of some sort precedes the lead up to this condition developing. It's something that is not developed from birth. This was not a congenital heart problem that Hank had. Cardiomyopathy includes many different types and are classified according to location and the type of damage or scarring to the heart muscle that occurs. In Hank's case, due to his condition, his heart scarring and muscle damage increased the risk of sudden death from the abnormal heart arrhythmia that he had. As such, the body tried to adapt and maintain, and with cardiomyopathy, it cannot fully compensate for the loss of the damaged muscle cells of the heart, and this makes it all the more difficult for the heart to contract normally at a normal rate and rhythm. This damage is what causes the abnormal heart rhythm, and so the risk of sudden death from these arrhythmias is due to the fact that there is a reduction of the amount of blood that the heart can pump, and the lowering of the blood pressure can develop, and thus a reduction of the supply of oxygenated blood to the brain and heart can lead to collapse or fainting in an otherwise previously healthy individual, as in Hank Gather's case. Left untreated and without regular medication, it can lead to sudden death. Now, interestingly enough, in 1984, the American College of Cardiology said that athletes with cardiomyopathy should be disqualified from competing if they have suffered a collapse and have been diagnosed with an abnormal heart rhythm and arrhythmia. The autopsy report for Hank Gathers said that the team doctors had examined Hank extensively and found that he had periodic irregular heartbeats. And he had actually suffered a collapse in December of 1989, but he was cleared for play with medication to help regulate his heart rate and his heart beat. I don't know what I'm trying to angle at, but wherever I'm going with this, I might need to contact Jesse Ventura from Conspiracy Theory because the power and the presence of a school sports program can be unimaginable and unbelievable in how many times things get overlooked and who suffers as a result of that. But I'm not going to go into that conversation, so let's move on past that. In the aftermath of Hank's passing, his son Aaron, who was six years old at the time, had his grandmother wake him up in the middle of the night to tell him his father was gone. Aaron grew up without a father's guidance, and 
The family had settled in a civil suit with the LMU cardiologist who had treated Hank, which made Aaron reportedly stand to receive nearly $1.5 million at a very young age. He made some bad decisions and fell into the wrong crowd. Ultimately, he ended up serving time in prison for five years for aggravated assault with a weapon. And it was while in prison that he actually started playing basketball in the prison yard. Upon his release in 2012, he felt a little bit closer to his father in a way and decided to change his own life. He now is a man who has a great job, a family of his own, and while he only knew his father in a physical sense for a short amount of time in his life, Aaron feels as though he is doing his father proud and that he has his father's approval. Regarding Hank's teammates, they were shell-shocked. The game on March 4th had been canceled after Hank was wheeled out, and after Hank's death was announced, the rest of the tournament was also canceled. LMU made it to the big dance that year on their record alone, but also because no one was really going to object to that. In fact, in that whole conference, they were all rooting for LMU to win that year, and probably by extension, the whole nation was as well. The Little Lions from LMU while wounded, still roared. They beat the defending champion Michigan in the second round, and they got by Alabama to make it to the Elite Eight. It was there that they faced UNLV, and the emotional drain that came with Gather's death was starting to be felt at this point. The energy slipped away, and the LMU Lions lost that game to the team that would eventually go on to win the whole thing. And LMU as a basketball program has only had four winning seasons since that 1989-1990 season. Their games that once drew crowds and packed gyms now really only draw gatherings, but there are always memories to hold on to. A few of Hank's teammates went on to the NBA, and they carried Hank's passion and Hank's memory with them. So I guess in a way, Hank did make it to the NBA with them. Bo Kimball was the number eight pick in the 1990 NBA draft, and in memory of his teammate, his best friend, for the remaining part of the 1990 season at LMU, he did an interesting homage to his fallen brother. During LMU's subsequent run to the Elite Eight, Kimball, who was right-handed, shot his first free throw of each game left-handed in memory of Hank Gathers, who although right-handed, struggled so much with free throws that he tried shooting them with his left hand for a time. Kimball made all three attempts. Hank was right there with them. Now for Hank's family, he was the oldest of three brothers. Derek was playing basketball for Cal State Northridge, which was about 25 miles away from LMU, where Hank was playing. Hank was the older brother by 10 months, and Derek essentially idolized him. Derek recalls that one time he and Hank were at a party in a club back home in downtown Philly. And Hank had told Derek about a new friend that he had made who had just recently won an award for his rapping. It was then that Hank had introduced Derek to a very young Will Smith. It was a great memory Derek held on to and that he had regarding his big brother. But maybe the best were the memories of what Hank wanted to do. Hank had a natural charisma but remained humble, and he wanted to give back to the community, especially to the youth in Philly after he turned pro. He wanted to plan to eventually carry his family out of the projects of Philly, out of the ghetto that he grew up in. He wanted to take care of his family, to let his mother know that she was taken care of for the rest of her life. Derek remembers that Hank was a giving guy and would have blessed a lot of the youth if he was still physically around. He was destined for greatness. There are so many what-ifs that surround his death and just surround who he is and who he could have been almost 30 years later. There is one universal truth to this, though. Tragedies are unstoppable at times, 
They come and go and leave devastation and heartbreak in their wake. And most of all, they leave questions. And few deaths in the world of sports left more questions behind than the passing of Hank Gathers. Now as a side note, on the greatest basketball playing drama that ever aired on the WB CW network, One Tree Hill, Lucas Scott, who was a character on there, one of the main ones, had a whole story arc over multiple seasons about how he was playing basketball with a heart condition and needed to take medicine. So, of course, for the sake of a storyline, he does not end up taking his medication and ends up collapsing a few times. But during his character arc, he ends up leaving the game he loved and decides to become a writer and makes bank right off the bat because that is an accurate portrayal of what happens to all brand new writers. You automatically make it big and you write a bestseller. If you want to know more about this amazing show you should go listen to the Tree Hill podcast. They cover every single episode of One Tree Hill. It's magnificent. Anyways, I was just thinking about that because I was listening to a few of their episodes while I was writing this one. And I was like, oh, I wonder if Lucas's storyline had to have been partially inspired by Hank Gathers. Now, speaking of that, before I go into the next little bit of this episode, there's actually exists the video of Hank's collapse and you can look it up on YouTube. I kind of glossed over how he collapsed and I strongly warn you to proceed with the utmost caution while watching the video because it is graphic. It's heartbreaking. It guts me to watch it, but if you want to see just how fast everything happened, you can look it up online. I won't be putting it in the show notes though because I just don't feel right doing that. You're seeing a young man in the last moments of his life, essentially. You're seeing and watching his family's guttural reaction to watching this event happen at that time. And the anguish and screams and cries I have experienced in the ER from family members and friends having their hearts shattered in real time is something extremely emotional to encounter. If you watch that film, it won't leave you. So please remember that if you intend to look it up. Now, while Hank's story had a tragic and unexpected ending, there are instances where abnormal heart rhythms do not have a fatal result. In fact, just recently, one of you listeners shared a story with me that I'm going to share with all of you right now regarding a phenomenon that happens to the heart without any real rhyme or reason. So Kayla, this one is for you because this one is you. Kayla's Saturday was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing too stressful. In fact, it was probably quite pleasant. Kayla does not have much of a medical history, migraines here and there, endometriosis, and she's had a back surgery, but nothing really out of the ordinary and especially nothing cardiovascular or heart related. She's not on any meds except for a few vitamins and supplements and her rescue migraine medication. See, this is also a part where Kayla shared with me how amazing her blood pressure is. Some of us don't have that luxury, but her blood pressure usually runs between 90s to 100s over 60s. The average person usually has 120 over 80. So Kayla's doing really well with her blood pressures. And as such, her resting pulse, her resting heart rate, if you will, is usually between the 60s and 70s. For most adults, our resting heart rates on average run between 60 to 100. So for Kayla, no worries, no stress, 
no problems. And Saturday was shaping up to be a routine day with nothing different and nothing out of the ordinary. After some shopping and lunch, she came home and changed into her comfy clothes and sat down, pulling out her phone and starting to look at Twitter. When you shared with me that you started to look at Twitter when everything started happening, I think we can attribute that this was all Twitter's fault, Kayla, because all of a sudden she felt her heart rate starting to pick up and then it started beating out of her chest. So she let it be for a little bit, thinking that it would go back to normal and that maybe the Beatles would be proud of that reference. After 10 minutes, she used her husband's blood pressure monitor and decided to check her blood pressure and heart rate. Now it showed 91 over 85 and her heart rate was now 153. Uh Uh-oh, that's not good. That blood pressure is not good and that heart rate is definitely not good. Again, normal heart rates are between 60 to 100. And as for the blood pressure, well, you never really want the two numbers to be that close together. Just keep that in mind for right now, you guys. So Kayla grabbed her stethoscope and listened to her heart for a couple of minutes. Oh yeah, now would be a good time to mention that Kayla is a nurse. Now this is also a good time to mention that healthcare providers make the worst patients, myself included. One time I actually worked with full-blown flu and had to go into the back room of the nurse's station in between seeing patients to receive fluids because I refused to go home. It's fine. I'm just carrying this barf bag on me for fashion purposes. Tell me what brought you into the ER today, sir. Pay no attention to me trying to hold in all of my guts. Now back to Kayla. She's a nurse, and so she's listening to her heart rate, doing its best imitation of a hummingbird, I imagine. Fast heart rates over a sustained amount of time can only last so long before the heart gets stressed out and exhausted, and then bad things can happen. And so Kayla knew that she needed to get her heart rate down. So she tried to vacle down twice, and then coughed a couple times, but nothing seemed to help. If anything, her heart rate was going higher. Okay, so let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to vagal down? So do you remember that episode of Scrubs where every time JD pooped on the toilet, he passed out? That's a form of a vagal maneuver. That's stimulating your vagus nerve. So when you bear down like you've got a poop, cough, gag, immerse your face into cold water, aka have a cold stimulus to the face, or do a guided carotid massage, which I'm pretty sure is not available at the Massage Envy, you are trying to put pressure on your vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is instrumental in helping to control the heart rate amongst other things. It's a way of do it yourself, slow down your heart rate. Sometimes it works and you go about your life free to move about the cabin. But in Kayla's case, she was unsuccessful in bringing down her heart rate and bringing down the fast heart rhythm, her tachycardia, in order to be at that normal 60 to 100. So at this point, Kayla reckons it's been about 20 minutes or so, so she made the decision to go to the urgent care. See, nurses are the worst patients. So she gets there and she finds out that her heart rate is now at 189. She gets taken back to a room and it took about 15 minutes for someone to come in and see her. Then all of a sudden, everything sped up. The doctor came in after they had done her EKG and said to her, you're making me nervous. We don't have the meds to help you. You came to the wrong place. And she actually, Kayla actually shared with me that she had never seen a doctor shaking and having rapid speech and just an overall wreck until that moment. So the doctor at the urgent care called a priority one to get Kayla to the ER immediately 
lights and sirens via ambulance at the urgent care they had actually started an IV to try and help with getting things moved along as fast as possible. So the paramedics came to the urgent care and started the process of actually giving her a medication called adenosine on scene at the urgent care. They needed to slow down her heart rate right then and there and there are certain medications that ambulances and medics can give out in the field prior to arrival to an ER. So adenosine or adenocard, same thing, is a medicine that goes in through an IV that basically stops a person's heart, but only for a second, only just a skosh. The hope is that it stops it long enough in that short amount of time to essentially reboot it and restart that heart rate at a normal rate and rhythm. It's one of those meds that you quite literally push into an IV. You slam that med super fast and follow it immediately with a flush of saline in order to get that medicine into the body as quickly as possible. So just kind of keep that in mind that things are happening rapidly. And also, Kayla is awake while all of this is happening. So you always try chemical means before you go to electrical means if you have the time to afford that. This means that you try to slow down a heart rate going from least invasive to most invasive measures. Kayla had already tried vagal maneuvers and that's a least invasive. Then you graduate it up to a medication or a chemical means when it doesn't work. So if that medicine, that adenocard, is not going to work, Kayla might end up buying a ticket to getting an actual shock in her heart via the defibrillator. So right now she's at the medication stage of things. And right now she's about to feel like shit. But she also happened to share with me some, some humor that I guess happened when the medics were getting ready to administer this medication. So Kayla, being a listener and total friend of the show, was talking with the medics, making small talk, laying there, and calmly telling them about how she listens to all types of podcasts, and she just listened to an episode of this podcast by yours truly. She's about to be loaded into an ambulance, about to have her heart stopped, just for that skosh, just for a little smidge, and she's plugging this program. I expect this level of dedication from all of you during a medical emergency. Kidding. Maybe. You can talk through an ET tube. Sure, why not? Kayla said that they pushed the first dose of the medication, and this is when she literally felt like shit. She described it as the falling. She said, there is no way to describe how it feels because there's nothing you can compare it to. But you go numb, you have some tingling, and then you feel sick, and you have a massive headache, and it's a doom and gloom feeling all of a sudden. And then it's back to normal. Well, I guess that would make sense since, you know, your heart just stopped, but only for a second. Now that first dose didn't quite work and they said they had to give it to her again. And that's when she thought to herself, oh hell no, not again. But this time when they administered that second dose, it worked. However, the side effects were more intense, which actually makes sense. Usually when you are giving the first dose of adenosine, you give about six milligrams. When you have to do another round, you give 12 milligrams. So you're doubling up the dose, which makes sense as to why things were just a bit more intense. Now, after Kayla's rhythm had converted back to normal, they loaded Kayla up into the ambulance and she rode to the ER. Now, the medic apparently promised her that he wouldn't be flying to the ER and that he would be keeping all four wheels on the road. He made that reference because Kayla had told him about the flight nurse episode of this program. She's cracking jokes with the medic, y'all. Kayla, how are you even real? Oh, I do know how you're real. She doesn't like Miracle Whip and I still don't like Miracle Whip. Mayo, you're okay, but Miracle Whip, get the hell out of here. So I know you're a good person. At this point, 
With some humor and laughter on board, Kayla's heart rhythm, while still going somewhat fast and kind of tacky, it's nowhere near that 189. And she said that they actually had made her a priority too. So it's interesting when you do emergency medicine, but we kind of go maybe backwards with things. So priority one is lights and sirens. We need to get you out of here. We need you to get to the ER as fast as possible. Priority two is a step below it where you are still very urgent and emergent, not even urgent, you are emergent, which emergent is a step above urgent and you need to be seen immediately, but maybe we're not thinking like codes or CPR in progress or massive bleeding or just things that that make you pucker. So still still emergent, but not as emergent as it once was. So it's sometimes it's hard to make that call for a level two, or I'm sorry, a priority two. But in this case, because the medication interventions had been working, there is a level of reassurance that she's a stable priority two, and that's what she came in under instead of the priority one. Now, Kayla gets to the ER and they do another EKG. By then, everything had calmed down, labs were good, and they kept an eye on her, but she was ultimately able to be sent home. Now, being a nurse, she ended up at the hospital she had worked at for 10 years because, of course, so, duh, they have to give her a hard time about not letting them have all the fun. So she said to them that the next time, she'll make sure to go to the ER right away and ask for that one specific nurse because she's always wanted to push adenosine. And actually, on an ER level, when you get to push adenosine, it's so much fun. Number one, you get to slam it like you're slamming in an epi into a person during a code. So whenever you get to just push meds really rapidly, it's kind of fun because you're always about to see something happen either instantaneously or not happen instantaneously. Like these are meds that happen to work super fast. So you see the results right then and there. And it's always kind of fun on a personal level because basically you're about to see some serious shit, Marnie McFly. And two, again, this is the ER side of things. This is not having the medication in me. I think it's fun to see a person's heart go from incredibly fast to have this long pause where you sort of stop it briefly, you stop that heartbeat, and then it restarts at a normal rate and rhythm. In fact, I kept the rhythm strip from the first time I got to push adenosine and it converted somebody back to a normal rhythm, and I keep it in my nurse keepsake box. You probably don't want to know everything else that's in that box, but let me just say it was kind of a cool moment, and I definitely keep that with me just to be like, medications are awesome when they work, and it's really incredible what medicines can do to help people instantly. So Kayla wanted me to pass along this teachable moment that she had. Cue that NBC, the more you know star flying in the background. For her, the moral of the story was don't go to urgent care when you have SVT. Go directly to the ER. And probably that nurses make the worst patients. So SVT is no joke. I've seen it in older folks, teenagers, men, women. It does not know demographics. It just happens. Now, what is SVT? SVT stands for supraventricular tachycardia. And so this means that there is a rapid heartbeat that originates in the chambers above the ventricles. So keep in mind that your heart has four chambers, two on the top, the left and the right atrium, and two on the bottom, the left and the right ventricle. SVT can occur due to a large variety of reasons, such as structural abnormalities and heart failure but it can occur because of health conditions such as anemia, thyroid disorders, or again, heart problems. 
And it can occur because people drink caffeine, use herbal supplements, or use some other dietary supplements. Also, what can lead to it? Dehydration, pregnancy, exercise, fever, stress, smoking, drinking, or using illegal drugs. All of these can increase chances of developing SVT. Again, it can happen to anybody, and there's a whole myriad of causes as to why it happens. Now, there are a few different classifications of SVT based on the electrical pathway, which is taken from the atria, those two chambers that sit on top of the ventricles. So for example, SVT in which the electrical signals travel from the AV node to the ventricles and back again to the atria is called AV reentry tachycardia. Now, when the electrical signals travels in a circle through the fibers in and around the AV node, the rhythm is referred to as AV nodule reentry tachycardia or AVNRT, or maybe they say Avnert. I just want to say Avnert. I feel like they say that. I don't remember offhand, but I'm going to. So Kayla actually mentioned to me that she recently followed up with a cardiologist. So yay for doing proper follow-up. We aren't the worst patients sometimes. And she found out that her SVT was that last one I just mentioned, AV nodule reentry tachycardia. So she is undergoing some more testing and imaging in order to do a thorough evaluation of her heart to make sure that she has nothing lurking in her heart that might decide to screw her over in the future. So for some people, they never have an SVT episode again. And for others, it might reoccur in the future. Having that follow-up with the heart doctor and the cardiology team helps to figure out if things need to have some sort of medical interventions in terms of medications for prevention or regulation in order to avoid this happening again. Now, one thing Kayla did mention is how she is doing nowadays. While she's doing better-ish, the side effects of a prolonged Avnart is exhaustion. She feels major fatigue. And she was told by the cardiologist that it's because that during an episode of SVT, she basically used up all of her adrenaline. Uh, something about the sympathetic nervous system, blah, 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 whatever. Listen, if you're a cardiologist and you're listening, you're more than welcome to tell me all about the best way to explain all of that minutia that goes into the sympathetic nervous system. For the sake of this, I'm just going to round it out and say, I'm glad you're doing better-ish, Kayla, and thanks for sharing your story with me and allowing me to share the story with listeners, and thanks for plugging this podcast while receiving help from paramedics. You're a real OG, if you will. So again, Kayla, I am very, very thankful that you are doing better. Please keep me updated because that's just so totally crazy whenever somebody comes in with SVT. It's kind of fun for us, but probably not that great for you. <laughs> so let's wrap this up with another round of You Got What Stuck Where. It's a fun game sweeping the nation that never ceases to offer me more source material. People just love sticking things in places they don't belong. So I give you four clues, you guess what got stuck, and I'll give you the where because sometimes I'm lazy and can't think of four clues. So it's like a built-in clue is the where. All you have to do is tweet to me at people are wild. And if you are the most correct guest first, you get stickers and bragging rights. So here we go. Clue one, this happened in my current adopted home of Texas, and specifically in Chip and Joanna Gaines' country of Texas, the exotic land of Waco. Clue two, a young woman thought she could outsmart law enforcement with where she hid 
this foreign object on her person. Clue three, she really did a number on testing the limits on what is covered on a concealed carry of sorts, if you think about it. And clue four, the object in question was stuck in her vagina, so there's that. Now here's some good news. I talked about this last week, I think, and I got some help from a good friend, so now I can announce that I have an archive of sorts of you got what stuck where answers. So now you have an answer key of sorts that also has links to articles that contain images and more follow-up about what got stuck where for these individuals. I will be updating it as needed and hopefully it makes things a little bit easier to find in terms of answers to older episodes depending on when you started listening to this podcast. By all means, everybody, you can still guess but I think I'm only going to keep it for a week of guessing and then I'll update the answer key. So I'm hoping that it helps things just a little bit more, especially if you start listening to this maybe later on. So thanks again though for listening. I have only a few more episodes coming at you from Texas before I get to embark on my next assignment. And all I can say about my next assignment right now is that my hiking boots are very happy about our change in scenery. So have a great week ahead, practice random acts of kindness, and in case of an emergency, always go to the ER instead of urgent care.